This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, the upcoming federal election campaign will be about a lot of different things, but just how relevant are the comments made in 2005 by Andrew Scheer about same-sex marriage? Also, Canada now finds itself in a bit of a bind concerning the man they call Jihadi Jack. But perhaps there's a better way for countries to work together to bring ISIS war criminals to justice. Plus, journalist Tristan Hopper taking a lot of flack for how he handled an encounter with an aggressive raccoon over the weekend. Well, it feels like I've missed a lot. A lot was going on in the two weeks I was away. It's good to be back. Uh, I was maybe slightly tempted a couple of occasions uh, during the past two weeks uh, to come back because there was a lot going on, a lot that felt as though maybe I wanted to be talking about. Certainly one of the big stories that that, um, that landed during the last couple of weeks was the Ethics Commissioner report into the SNC-Lavalin affair and finding that indeed the Prime Minister had violated the Conflict of Interest Act. It was a pretty devastating report. And coming, of course, uh, just before a federal election is uh, potentially very worrisome for the Liberal Party of Canada. Seems like the kind of thing that we really ought to be talking about in the lead up to an election. But it's the kind of thing that obviously the Liberals would just as soon not talk about. And so we've got the same kind of dynamic I think we saw to some extent here in Alberta, where it's about the leader of the opposition party. Let's talk about him instead. I think Andrew Scheer as conservative leader is an interesting position right now. The polls suggesting that it's at least theoretically possible that we could get a conservative government in the upcoming federal election. It's also interesting that it doesn't appear as though the People's Party of Canada has caused too many problems for the federal conservatives. Maybe, if anything, it's been beneficial in a way that uh, the People's Party can kind of act like flypaper. Or some more unsavory elements uh, in, in Canadian politics uh, and, and not cause the conservatives any problems. They haven't had any bozo eruptions, uh, no big controversies going into this election. But the uh, Liberal Party of Canada decided that uh, they were going to, to play the card of same-sex marriage. They uh, dug up a speech from Andrew Scheer delivered in the House of Commons in 2005 during the debate on same-sex marriage, in which Andrew Scheer makes it pretty clear that that he is not in support of same-sex marriage and explaining the reasons why he's voting against it. Is this relevant to Canadians voting in the 2019 federal election? I suppose that's up to each and every one of you. Like I say, it's similar to what we saw here in Alberta in the recent provincial election, uh, where various statements from Jason's Kenny, uh, Jason Kenney's past were brought out by the NDP. Ultimately, Albertans decided that it wasn't all that relevant and that they voted for change. Certainly when it comes to the issue of same-sex marriage, look, the Conservative Party of Canada has officially embraced same-sex marriage as part of what the party stands for. 
But the liberals are trying to suggest that Andrew Shu and the conservatives are going to undo same-sex marriage. Well, that's a pretty ridiculous proposition. If the liberals are putting it out there to suggest that Andrew Scheer, given his own personal beliefs, might not be an ally to the LGBTQ community on certain other issues, maybe that's a valid point. Reality is, in 2005, there were a lot of people in Canada, not just in the Conservative Party, the Liberal Party too, as a matter of fact, that were not yet on board with the idea of same-sex marriage. Here we are some 15 years later, a lot has changed. For all intents and purposes, this debate is settled. So why bring it up? What is the strategy here? Well, joining us for some thoughts and all this, very pleased to welcome to the program, Chris Selle. He's a columnist with the National Post, nationalpost.com. Chris, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Happy to be here. Uh, What do you suspect the strategy is here? Well, the strategy, if there is one, um, and I, I kind of question whether it's really all that devious a strategy, considering that they had... Ralph Goodale tweet this out, and which instantly blew up in their faces because Ralph Goodale used to oppose same-sex marriage, yeah. and they could have chosen literally anyone else uh, in the in the party to tweet this out uh, and not have that instant blowback. But to the extent that uh, I think there's strategy, I mean, I think it's a to shore up the base to to just remind uh, those liberals who think that they're you know in a battle for civilization. Um, that that the, the barbarians are forever at the gate, um, and then I guess it's just whatever you know. This is this is this is the liberals do the liberals do this all the time. Is it, um, just try to paint their opponents as uh, fundamentally intolerant and a threat to people's rights, and usually it's abortion. Um, and I, I just just a couple of weeks ago, I think on Twitter, I wondered aloud. You know, it's kind of weird. Isn't it that, that they're constantly saying that the conservatives will um, roll back abortion rights, but no one, they never seem to say that he, he's going to roll back same-sex marriage rights, and then boom, mm-hmm. <laughs> here we are. So I guess, I guess it's just um, a matter of some desperation, uh, and it was a button to be pushed at some point, and they decided to push it now. I mean, understandably, you know, you have SNC Lavalin in the headlines. You know, that's the short-term gain, possibly, is that it sucked up some of the oxygen from that. It does. I mean, maybe that's all it was. Maybe in a week or two from now, we won't really be talking about this, or the liberals won't be talking about this. Maybe they got more on, on Andrew Scheer that they plan on, on trotting out throughout the campaign year. Maybe this is just a, a little sampling of, of what's to come. I'm sure. I, I, well, I'm not sure, but I, I, I am sure that they are hard at work um, trying to find uh, other things that Andrew Scheer said in, in the past. Um and, you know, that's sort of the problem. <laughs> you know, it's, it's this strange situation where, you know, Ralph Goodale never explained, as far as I could see anyways, um, researching my column, he never put his reasons for opposing same-sex marriage on the record. Um, he basically said it was a matter, well, he, he should have said that's what his constituents think, which isn't really a particularly good reason. It's certainly not a reason that um, liberals would accept from conservatives nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, it's sort of the curse of the politician who actually explains himself <laughs> instead of keeping quiet and, and not rocking the boat that later in life they're going to have to um, answer for these things. Um, so I'm sure I'm sure there's any number of liberal operatives digging through uh, digging through Andrew Scheer's history. And, you know, given that speech, which is pretty, you know, <laughs> 
was, it was pretty, pretty, um, well, it wasn't fiery in delivery, but it was pretty, uh, it, you know, it was an explicitly religious defense of civil yeah. marriage. Right. Um, and so I'm sure it would, it would surprise me if he hadn't said the same or worse uh, in other, in other uh, venues. And, and I guess the, maybe the, the implication is that he still believes this. And, and I think that there have been others, as you know, that have said, yes, I, I used to oppose same-sex marriage, and, and here's why I no longer do. Here's how my views evolved or changed on the subject. That it's entirely plausible that, that Andrew Scheer hasn't really changed his mind. He's, he's come to grips with the reality, I, I think, in Canada, but maybe he still harbors the same beliefs. Is that fair to say? Well, I, yeah, I mean, he has said he's been quite forceful in saying, look, I support the status quo. I am an ally of LGBTQ people, um, not just in Canada, but around the world. But I think that that is sort of, as I say, the, the, the problem for him is that he explained why he opposed it. And that sort of creates an expectation that he might explain at some length, as you say, how his views evolved, whereas someone like Ralph Goodale, who never really explained why he opposed it, doesn't have that obligation. He can just now say, oh, I changed my mind. Um, I support it now. And then he can use it as a weapon. Well, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't seem entirely fair uh, that Andrew Scheer should be forced to explain himself and all the other people should be forced not to explain themselves because... We weren't, we aren't just talking about marriage here, right? Like we're talking about liberals in the very recent past voting against very basic rights for same-sex couples. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, social economic benefits, uh, adoptions, um, bereavement leave—all these things that were totally mainstream, and that no one asks them to answer for that. You know, it was only 20 years ago. We're not talking about marriage. That, that was a complex debate because it, the word wraps up all sorts of um, cultural and, and religious things. But the idea of actually discriminating on tangible benefits against same-sex couples was totally mainstream opinion incredibly recently in Canada. And no one asks any of the liberal politicians to answer for that. Um, indeed, they get away with weaponizing it against the conservatives. And here's Ralph Goodale actually inviting uh, Andrew Scheer to a pride parade in Ottawa, and thankfully that blew up in his face as well, because people were saying, uh, excuse me, <laughs> this is not your parade. You don't get to invite this guy to it, especially since we don't really like it. So it's, yeah. it's a... Yeah, uh, Canadian politics is, is kind of weird. Like People are often obsessed more with, I find, more with why people do things than, than what they do. Um, but I think the fact is that... <laughs> Shears on the record, and, and that's uh, that is a pretty, um, you know, I don't think I've seen a more fiery um, or nakedly religious uh, defense of traditional marriage on the record uh, in in the, in the House of Commons. And so, I, I certainly, at the bare minimum, you know, I don't think it's unfair that he's unpopular in the gay community. I mean, I think that's completely understandable. Uh, but I do think it's it's a strange situation where the liberals. Um, can actually get away with uh, with weaponizing it, but I, you know, in terms of it showing up their base, their base doesn't care about that. Their mm-hmm. base doesn't care about the hypocrisy. Well, and, and I think that speaks to the contrast they've been trying to to draw here between uh, Justin Trudeau's very 
excited and, and enthusiastic about attending Pride parades, and, and Andrew Shear has made a decision that, that he's not going to. And, and, and you mentioned that, too, because it, it kind of puts Andrew Shear in a no-win situation where, you know, he's, he's being asked, why aren't you attending Pride parades? And then the mere suggestion that he might come to the Ottawa Pride parade, uh, Ralph Goodale's uh, invitation, you've got people saying, well, no, you, you can't come. You're not welcome here. He's sort of in a, a no-win situation, it seems. Yeah, I, I think the time to go to a pride parade, if he was ever going to make that shift, was was a long time ago. Um, uh, you know, a couple years ago at, at least, because I think at this point it's not going to make a difference, um, especially like a few months out from an election, right? I mean, pe- people are just going to the narrative will instantly just shift from he doesn't go to a pride parade to oh he went to one pride parade we're supposed to be impressed by this. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the time that ship has sailed, I think, and you know there are people who seem to think it's very unfair. Uh, that he should be forced to, or well, obviously he's not forced to, but but that he should be judged on, according to this metric. But the fact is that, you know, this is a significant portion of the Canadian population that has been um, very, until very recently, um, and is still in, in unofficial ways, uh, discriminated against in, in pretty awful ways. And the, for for good reasons or whatever, like, for whatever reason, attending a pride parade has become just the basic symbol uh, for public figures of um, allyship, and so if you're not going to go, that you're you're going to you're you're going to be your motives are going to get questioned. Um, but I, I think I think there's no point in him worrying about that at this point. I think that 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 ship has sailed. Um, he's you know I'm sure there's a pride parade. I'm sure there's you know several pride parades in this country he could go to where he would be welcome. Yeah. Um, you know Doug Ford. The Ontario Premier marched in one, um, I can't remember where, but it was a small community north of Toronto, uh, and and he was welcome. But I, I just don't think, well, I don't know. I, 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 it would surprise me if after all this he went, oh, okay, fine, I'll go to a private Because then, quite rightly, and, th- and then people are still going to say, well, you still haven't explained yourself. Like, I think it would actually be much more valuable um, and, and really genuinely interesting for him to explain uh, the evolution in his views. And it might just be as simple as, you know, I realized that basically there's civil marriage and then there's religious conceptions of marriage. And we really weren't, you know, that whole debate was just mashing the two together and it became this terrible mess that it shouldn't have been because we were really talking about two different things. Um, I'm not putting words in his mouth, but I'm just saying to me, that would be interesting. Um, and much more valuable than just the, sim- the symbolism of showing up at a pride parade. It would, and and I, yeah, and I think the problem with Andrew Shearer at times is when you know when when he's speaking or trying to speak from the heart about certain things. I, I think there's a tendency, and, and the prime minister's the same way, uh, to at the same time be thinking, well, what should I say? How's this going to play if I say it this way? And and there's a real reluctance, I think, to to get deep into the issue. I mean, the broader question, though, Chris, is, is how much ultimately this is going to matter in the upcoming election, right? We, we've, we've got four years of liberal government that Canadians are going to have an opportunity to have a say on. Uh, the Conservatives have laid out their vision for how they would be different from the Liberals. And Canadians will have a chance to judge that as well. On an issue that look, the Conservatives, they, they had a free vote on gay marriage as soon as they took office. Uh, and then they left the issue alone. They weren't inclined for almost a decade to touch this issue, revisit, reopen this issue. Are Canadians really worried that 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 this guy's going to? I mean, I doubt that anyone who is worried uh, that for anyone who is worried that this has changed anything. I mean, this to me, it, this is this whole issue of of um, Andrew Shear and the Conservatives rolling back. 
human rights. That's just that's kind of baked into Canadian politics at this point. And every now and again, people poke at it um, just to get a rise out of people. But I don't think that it's going to change. I mean, this has been on the record for, for I mean, <laughs> you know, this is really like breaking news. I mean, it's enhanced. You can search it uh, on the Internet. It's not like this is um, uh, a huge surprise. Yeah. Uh, everyone knows his views. Um, so no, I don't think it's going to change anything. I, I think it's just a way to, as I say, to, to get a rise out of people um, and distract people. Uh, I think there are people who, who, you know, there are people who believe the conservatives when they say they're not going to roll back abortion rights or same-sex marriage rights, and then there's people who don't. Uh, I don't think there's going to be a big shift between those two camps um, because it's the same people who thought the same thing about Stephen Harper for, yeah. for 10 years. Uh, I, I don't think there's going to be a big shift. All right. Well, it's going to be an ugly campaign. Uh, much more nationalpost.com. Chris, always appreciate it. Thanks for joining us here today. Thanks, Rob. All right. Chris Selle, columnist for the National Post, nationalpost.com, and why he thinks it's uh, rather hypocritical and arrogant for the liberals, especially someone like Ralph Goodale, uh, to come out now and play this card against Andrew Scheer. So the statement last week... Uh, on behalf of Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale. The government of Canada is aware the United Kingdom revoked the citizenship of Jack Letts. Terrorism knows no borders, so countries need to work together to keep each other safe. Canada is disappointed that the United Kingdom has taken this unilateral action to offload their responsibilities. Uh, so this is uh, the case of this young man, Jack Letts. The British tabloids have dubbed Jihadi Jack. Grew up in Oxford's has been detained by the Kurds for about two years now. He was 18 when he set off for Syria. Now, he has tried to argue that um, he's, he's a, a changed man. His parents have uh, tried to urge Canada to get involved on his behalf. So what do we do with this guy? Now, he told the British broadcaster ITV News back in February that he left Raqqa, former hub for the Islamic State, and tried to travel overland to Turkey, where he intended to live out his life. He was arrested by Kurdish forces and transferred to a prison in northern Syria along the Turkish border. And that's where he remains. So the Brits have decided to wash their hands of this guy. Citizenship revoked, you're no longer our problem. So instead of now being a dual citizen, he is now essentially a Canadian citizen. By virtue of having a Canadian parent. Although he really has no meaningful connection to Canada, hasn't spent any significant amount of time here, didn't live here, certainly didn't grow up here. So why should this now be Canada's problem? Well, our next guest says it shouldn't be, nor should it be Britain's problem. The countries on their own should not be dealing with this, that if we're serious about holding members of ISIS to account and prosecuting the crimes of the Islamic State, that we need a coordinated effort. And we've done it before with other situations and it would apply here. Having an international tribunal to bring these people to justice. Joining us for more is Kyle Matthews, executive director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights at Concordia University. Kyle, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Obviously, Canada's put in a tough position here, aren't we? I mean, given what uh, the UK has decided to do, basically wash their hands of this situation, where, where does that leave Canada? Well, I mean, it leaves Canada that this Jack Letts has had his British uh, 
citizenship revoked. So if he does uh, become free from imprisonment in Syria um, and he makes his way to Canada, then Canada has to accept him. So that's where it stands. But it doesn't really change a big picture for Canada because we have other of our citizens there uh, in those camps, um, some accused fighters, some women, children, and we don't seem to be doing anything yet. So it doesn't really change the big picture um, of, of what Canada has to do or should do at the international level. Right, and that big picture, and Canada's not alone. I mean, the UK is an obvious example, other Western countries as well. There's a real reluctance, isn't there, to, to take these these citizens back to deal with this ourselves. We're, we're almost kind of dumping the problem on our Kurdish allies, aren't we? Yeah, well, um, we have left our Kurdish allies, and we worked with them to defeat ISIS in Iraq and Syria, but now that uh, they've been pretty much defeated, at least don't hold territory anymore, uh, it seems like we haven't given any thought what to do with all these people, and um, and bringing them back and not prosecuting them is not really a good solution. Um, so we have to think about something like a bigger picture about what what the crimes that this group actually committed, like and, and that uh, jihadi jacker John Letts, what he did, I think we have to hold him to account, because ISIS has left a trail of death and destruction across the Middle East, and um, and we have to, to do more to, uh, to, to fight for ISIS victims rather than uh, the members who joined the group. Yeah, which is an important point because I, I think to some people there there is something appealing in just washing our hands of all of this, that, that these people left, we don't want them back, and there probably would be a lot of support, I imagine, for stripping citizenship, but that, that doesn't really solve any problem, does it? No, it doesn't. And, and you know, it, it, it was interesting. I was watching this weekend all the, the meetings of the G7 in, in France, and uh, Nyanya Murad, the Nobel Peace Prize laureate, uh, who was a survivor of the ISIS genocide and, and sexual slavery, she was with every leader, and they all smiled and took a selfie with her, saying, we're going to fight for justice for the Yazidis. But then, contrary to that, uh, they're doing nothing for the ISIS members, including our own citizens, who are in Syria. So, uh, so what is it going to be? Are we going to prosecute them, either in domestic courts or internationally, or just leave them there for as long as we can? Um, it really is. It's not that strategic, and I'm kind of worried that we haven't taken this more seriously as an international community. Well, and I suppose there's a, a longer-term risk that if these individuals aren't going to be, be prosecuted uh, and we're just going to, to wash our hands uh, of them, they're, they're not going to go away. And I suppose it's possible then that they could remain uh, in, in ISIS in some capacity that they could present a, a risk or a threat down the road if released. Well, it is. And, and you know, ISIS is not defeated. I mean, they, they have been defeated in Iraq and Syria, but they're expanding in Afghanistan, in the Philippines. We had attacks in Sri Lanka. So this is a, a group that's transnational and, and is empowered by citizens from all sorts of different countries. It really is unique. We haven't had a transnational group that has taken over territory, committed genocide and crime against humanity. So, so I think of holding them to account, it, it would send a message that we are not going to tolerate your behavior and we're going to end impunity. But right now it seems that we're fighting them, but we don't want to hold any of their members to account and actually expose them for what they're actually doing or have done. And, and I think that there is a need to, to prosecute these people. We can't just send a message that if you join this group that we're going to welcome you back or at least let you walk the streets and uh, maybe tap you on the wrist with a, with a one- or two-year imprisonment for leaving the country. I think it's much more serious than the crime of terrorism. It leads to the deeper human rights uh, abuses that this group committed. Right. So let's talk about how we can do that, and how we can do that in a, in, in a meaningful way, because it, it really is going to involve a lot of international cooperation, isn't it? Well, it is. 
is, and, and you know, a lot of different governments have different uh, intelligence or information on their citizens who, who join the group. There's the UN that's been investigating crimes in Syria and Iraq. Um, but the most interesting uh, proposal um, is that Sweden, backed by certain European countries, are, are talking about setting up an international tribunal um, to uh, look into ISIS crimes and, and hold its members to account, including the 800-plus people who are held by the Kurds right now. And I think that is an idea worth pursuing. Um, if we're not going to bring these people back and, and prosecute them in domestic courts, then we got to figure out an international mechanism to do that. And, and I think that's an idea that uh, that Canada, the government of Canada, should be looking at and, and looking at how it can support Sweden, the Netherlands, and even the UK that, that has, is starting to buy into this idea. Well, and, and I think there, there's a lot of merit to the idea. I mean, clearly it would be, uh, you know, a costly uh, idea. But if if we believe that this is important, that, that perhaps that, that's a cost worth bearing. Well, it is. And one of the criticisms, oh, it'll be expensive. But I can assure you that the cost of putting together some trust tribunal would only be a fraction, a small percentage of all the money that's been spent for the military campaign to defeat ISIS. And, and the other turn is that we have these people returning to Canada or to the UK or Germany and if we don't prosecute these people uh, our security officials know that they're a danger and we're forced to deploy 20 to 30 to 40 people full time to, to monitor these people 24-7 and follow them around and make sure they don't commit any terrorist attacks here and that's expensive as well so so I think we have to look at the big picture sometimes doing the right thing isn't the cheapest way but, but what is the test to uphold the international liberal order and human rights norms I think I think it's it's by you know using global justice as a, as a tool to to punish those who committed severe crimes. Well, do you, do you get the sense though that there's any momentum behind this idea? We just have the G7 leaders uh, gathered together this week, and I know certainly uh, ISIS and, and the situation in the Middle East is something that they were discussing. But are we getting any closer to this kind of an initiative? Um, well, I, I think I think we are. I think you know the, the Swedish foreign ministry had a major meeting of like-minded countries in early June, uh, attended by Germans, the French, the Dutch, um, the UN, and the European Union officials. Now the uh, the foreign minister of the Netherlands said he's going to ask the UN and UN member states to support this um, this fall at the UN. So I think there is some momentum. The question is, can we get a couple of their key allies, including Canada, try to support this? Um, you know, we supported the, the tribunal after the Rwandan genocide. We supported mm-hmm. the tribunal after the wars in the ex-Yugoslavian state. So, so if we're serious about ISIS, um, let's, let's try to move this a little further. And, and I don't see how it would, uh, hurt, um, it would hurt the cause of Canada get behind this. I think it's, it's a time for Canada to, to maybe, um, yeah, to give some political and financial support to this, to this idea that uh, other of our allies want to, to get going. Yes, indeed. Well, we'll see where it goes from here. Uh, in the meantime, Kyle Matthews, thanks so much for your insight on this and appreciate making some time for us here today. Thanks for having me on. That is Kyle Matthews, Executive Director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights at Concordia University. Uh, and so, yes, if we're going to take a stand for human rights and against genocide, we need to bring ISIS war criminals to justice. But what's the best way to do them? You know, interestingly, I've never actually encountered a raccoon in the wild. I'd like to think that if I did... I could take one, like if a raccoon wanted to cause trouble, I I, I would think I could handle myself. But that would be an unnerving situation uh, to deal with with a rodent, basically, that's on the attack. And that's apparently what our next guest encountered. 
And the way in which that was dealt with, well, to say the least, it's uh, it's divided opinion on social media. Uh, Tristan Hopper, formerly an Edmonton-based correspondent with the National Post, is uh, pursuing new ventures in Victoria. Well, he's not acting as a, a raccoon vigilante. Um, Tristan, thanks for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks, Mr. Breckenridge. <laughs> All right. So uh, this this got a lot of reaction, which I, I you must have known, I guess, once you decided to share this story publicly, that people were going to have strong opinions on both sides. No, and that's my biggest mistake in all this. I, I legitimately posted it thinking, hey, you know, this is, this is great. I saved a woman from a raccoon, and I potentially put a very sick animal uh, out of its misery. So, yeah, that's, that's okay. pretty naive okay. in hindsight. So, that all I right, just so maybe you didn't no anticipate. Yeah, yeah. How, well, I want to get into the details. Just in terms of what's your sense of the breakdown of the reaction is it is it 50 50 or have you got way more people mad at you than supportive of you what, what's your sense of it i don't know i haven't checked in because i have to like get back to living my life so there's a twitter pile on just you know happening in this whole other universe so i'd say i it's probably pro- I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if it's weighted towards the haters uh, because that's the nature of the internet Right. Um, this is uh, this is uh, people from all over the world. So this is people in the Netherlands, people in Germany. Um, I, you know, people for whom raccoon is just sort of this abstract concept they've maybe seen in a uh, in a recent CGI movie, yes. uh, rather than someone who has actually encountered uh, a raccoon on the attack and knows the circumstances. Okay, so tell us what happened. Sure. So. Um, coming home after a date with my wife, so, you know, I've had about five or six beers, uh, as we do, I, I don't know, you know, dates after a while in marriage, uh-huh. you have to drink until both of you are attractive. <laughs> so anyway, as we're walking, uh, up to the front door, uh, we're sitting on a bench, uh, this is nearish my parents' building, and then, uh, a woman walks out of the building, she's walking her small dog just for one late night tea, and I hear, <laughs> and I think it's a dog fight. Uh, so she's, she's screaming and trying to, so I think I'm just going to go over and just uh, kick a dog out of the way. Or actually in dog fights, you're supposed to grab one of the dogs and pick up its back legs. So I go over and it's a raccoon going right at the dog. It's already scratched the woman and seemingly a random attack. So uh, I know that ra- raccoons are not reservoirs of rabies. Right. You can't rule out that there's something unusual here, um, that this raccoon has seemingly come out of nowhere. So I try and kick it away. It continues the attack. So uh, somehow I, I managed to get my foot on its neck. That gives her a chance to get away. I'm afraid to let it loose because I don't know if it's going to go for me. Because if it is a rabid raccoon, again, very low chance of that. It's not going to stop attacking. Um, I, you know, I may not get a chance to basically get it to do it again. It could get loose and attack myself by then. There was cruise ship passengers gathered around. Um, so... I kept my foot on its neck. It's it's very strong, so it was sort of struggling. An old dude who was smoking came over with a stick and finished it off with a stick. And then I asked my dad to come down with the nearest weapon. We happened to have a machete on hand because I'd recently gone camping. So he comes down with a machete looking like a maniac. <laughs> and, um, yeah, we finished it off to make sure it's not suffering. Summon the Victoria police. They come, collect the body, and deemed no witness statements for an order. So that's what happened. Okay, so the, the police were aware of what had happened, and, and obviously you, you, you were not in any kind of trouble. Uh, no, and yeah. well, the, the reason I was, I was I was thinking this would be turned over to the city and there'd be a, a rabies test just to find out if there is, you know, distemper or rabies in the community. They said, no, nah, we're just going to dump it. Um, so, Interesting. 
Anyway, they knew what happened. Right. But it is it is unusual from what I understand. It is unusual for a raccoon to, to be aggressive at all like that. Yeah, and that's, I mean, a lot of people are saying, hey, I've lived around raccoons my whole life, and this has never happened. It was like, so have I. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't happened. So that's why I think I took the prudent stance. I mean, in an ideal situation, first of all, if it wasn't attacking someone, it's not like I would have gone out of my way to get it or uh, go at it. I mean, obviously, you would step aside in this circumstance. Uh, The only reason I intervened is because I think it's quite reasonable to think that if I hadn't, uh, something would have died, and it wouldn't have been the raccoon. It would have been a woman watching her small dog die. So I'm getting a lot of animal lovers uh, hating me for taking up the raccoon. Um, You know, it's a dead dog or a dead raccoon in either case. Ideally, I would have had a taser and a net and falconry gloves, but unfortunately, I don't carry those out when I go out drinking on a Friday night. But it's interesting that, that the raccoon didn't didn't run away at any point. Didn't run away? No. Um, yeah, it, continuing to uh, attack this particular dog, I, I, I think I got a, two good kicks to its rear end, and it just kept going. Um, so that's, you know, I'm not a raccoon expert, but I think from what I've seen, I lived in Toronto where um, you know, most of my neighbors were raccoons, um, yeah, usually a raccoon will trust. In my limited experience, this was unusual behavior, which caused me to be more aggressive than I would have normally. Uh, so the people who are mad at you, Tristan, I mean, are, <laughs> they obviously weren't in the situation. I wasn't in the situation. I don't right. know what I would do in that situation. But <clears throat> I, I think the idea of, of stopping the animals seems, seems fairly reasonable. What, what are people, I, I guess, suggesting you should have done instead? Well, there's, I mean, there's your, your, your straight-up fantasy scenario. So there's people who don't like the idea of a dead raccoon and, you know, can't really get beyond that. So, you know, if you explain the context, it'll be like, well, you, you, should, you shouldn't have killed a raccoon. So there's, you know, there's people saying, well, I would have called animal control, and that's what I would have done too if someone wasn't being attacked at the particular time. So animal control can take 20 to 30 minutes showing up on a late Friday night. So we already had a woman who had been scratched, and a dog that could have been killed. Um, so that's just not realistic. And then there's people who think I have a fair point, um, and they object to just, you know, someone putting, taking a picture with their foot on the neck of a raccoon and posting it to social media, which I, there's a lot of people who um, find that squeamish, and I guess I'm a bit out of touch. And I've spent a bit too much time with uh, people for or eating animals that they've killed is a much more normal thing. So I would just point out to those people, I think you're being hypocritical because you're probably a meat eater um, of a factory farm pig who maybe lived its life in darkness, and you probably live or work in a building in which there is rodent control, probably using slow-acting poison. So you don't like the idea of being brought face-to-face with a dead animal, but you do live in an environment that requires dead animals to function. Well, and the picture wasn't particularly graphic either. I, I guess maybe to some it seemed gratuitous, but it obviously doesn't change the, the facts of what happened here. And I guess ultimately that, that's what, what matters here. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think, uh, I, 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 I mean, the, the intention was very much not to prolong its suffering. So at one point, actually, when I initially had my, my foot on the raccoon, there was passing cruise ship passengers, and I was yelling at some young boy, like, get a rock, get a rock, smash its head in. Um, you know, it's suffering. And uh, that they, they scurried away, and their mother 
you know, told him he wasn't to do that on their, you know, Victoria vacation. Um, so, yeah, this wasn't, uh, I didn't take any pleasure in having a writhing raccoon under my foot. And, you know, I maybe I felt good that I was able to arrest this particular situation. But, um, yeah, this isn't something I seek out. Uh, it's not like I have the bloodlust and I'm looking around uh, for a seagull to choke now or something. Well, people want to read your account of this. Uh, you're on Twitter at Tristan Hopper. Tristan, thanks for making some time for us here today. Appreciate this. Thank you. All right. Take care. Tristan Hopper, formerly with the National Post, uh, pursuing a uh, exciting new media venture out of Vancouver Island in Victoria and now found himself in the middle of this uh, raccoon controversy. From what he described, does it sound like he did anything wrong? Now, somebody texted to say, Rob, a person barking like a dog should be enough to scare a raccoon off. Something was very wrong. And from what I understand, th- this is very unusual. That, that a raccoon would be so aggressive and would not be scared off. So the woman had already been attacked. Now, the dog is in the process of being attacked. So some intervention seems warranted, doesn't it? I mean, if, look, if a raccoon doesn't have to die, then fine. But what's the reasonable response in that situation? So you've got a combination of reaction to all of this, and it has been considerable that, that he shouldn't have done what he did. Or, fine, do it, but keep it to yourself. Don't post about it on social media. I'm not sure which reaction is stranger, to be honest. I mean, from what I've heard described, it doesn't sound unreasonable to me. You've got a, a, a potentially dangerous situation where someone's been hurt, a dog is in the process of being attacked, and a raccoon that's behaving very unusually. The idea of stopping the raccoon seems pretty logical, doesn't it? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.